Uh, we pray now that you would help us to open and look into your word. I pray that you would help us, Father, to understand what it has to say, that it would change us, morph us, that it would work in us to become more like Christ. I pray you would help me to speak clearly, uh, directly, in a way that is understandable to those who hear. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this weekend, uh, more specifically tomorrow, is for us as a nation, uh, Memorial Day. Uh, Now that holiday, uh, if you don't know the history of it, the holiday comes uh, just kind of uh, developed out of a desire to remember the fallen of the Civil War. Uh, The the idea is is that as a nation, while there have been, uh, certainly was conflicts before the Civil War and certainly there have been afterwards, uh, the Civil War is still the, the bloodiest war that we were a part of as a people. Uh, we uh, lost some 600,000 troops to the Civil War, only 400 plus thousand to World War II. And so that, that moment in our nation's history is deeply uh, embedded into our consciousness. It really doesn't matter which side that you identify with ideologically. Uh, the fact is, is that war uh, put a great scar upon our nation. And for a moment in time... This great experiment, as the Founding Fathers called our nation, almost fell. A few things go a a, a different way here and there over the course of that war. And today, sitting where the United States sits, could be anywhere from two to three to four different nations. And so it is a day that will forever be a part of our, it is a a moment, it is a war, I should say, that will be forever embedded into our consciousness. But again, there have been wars since then. Of course, World War I, World War II, the Spanish-American War, Vietnam, Korea. And we have lost, uh, uh, certainly, a, a number of the Middle East conflicts. And we take a day to stop and memorialize or to remember those who have died Uh, for us as a people. Now, a number of nations around the world also, uh, certainly out of more out of World War II, a number of nations in the world uh, also have Memorial Days as they recognize that there were men and women who gave their lives for the security of their nation. But a day like tomorrow, one of the things that it teaches us is the reality that nations rise and fall. Like I said, just a few moments or a few differences in the Civil War, and this nation would not exist, at least not in the format that it does today. But we should be reminded on days like tomorrow that quickly uh, a nation can rise and quickly a nation can fall. The Bible says that all those things are in the hand of God. This morning we come to a text in the book of Revelation that talks about a kingdom. Now, as Christians, many of us refer to this kingdom as the millennial kingdom. The Bible doesn't use that term. We just use the word millennial to describe it because it lasts for a thousand years. In the Bible, it's simply called the kingdom. And there are a number of Old Testament passages that tell us about a promise that God makes to his people that there would be a time and a place where his people could dwell. They would dwell in safety and they would be ruled over a righteous descendant of King David. And we believe that this text here in Revelation chapter 20 
is that promised kingdom, and we believe that that ruler is Jesus Christ. But the text does come out of Revelation, and for a lot of people, the book of Revelation can be very confusing. A lot of imagery, a lot of ideas that, uh, that John describes, and a number of them, even he's, he admits that he doesn't quite understand what he sees. But one of the keys to understanding the book of Revelation, or as it's more fully called, the Revelation of Jesus Christ, because it is a book that Jesus reveals to John. It is a book, though, that also reveals more about Christ. There are a number of things in this book that we would not know about Jesus if it it was not in here. But to understand the book of Revelation, really the key here is to understand that everything after chapter 3 is really said in light of everything mentioned in chapters 1 through 3. So if you're going to understand everything in the latter part of the book, you really need to focus on chapters 2 and 3 and understand what is happening as Jesus talks about these churches to the Apostle John. These churches have had to face a number of hardships. Some of them have have been inundated with false Christians. They have had a number of people continually show up claiming that they follow Christ or teach Christ or they come with the authority of Christ only to be found false. Some of these churches have had to exist under tremendous persecution. And some of these churches, because of many different factors, have gone chasing after foolishness and have abandoned the gospel. Now, the single most important word in the book of Revelation, because it appears a number of times, is the word endure. It tells us really what the theme of the book is. The purpose of the book of Revelation is to encourage the believer to endure. And so just like we saw with Daniel, what we have in a text here is something very literal. These are things that John saw. He says these are the things that are going to happen. But we also must understand that we are told these very literal things, these things that are going to happen in the future, we're told them because they have lessons for us to learn. Not simply, as I've mentioned before, to to tickle our curiosity, not to get us to daydream, but really to teach us things. And I have three lessons I want to share with you this morning coming out of this particular text. Number one. Number one, the first lesson I would show you out of this text is this. Remain vigilant against deception. It is the lesson to remain vigilant against deception. Notice in the first three verses of chapter 20, John sees a future where Satan or the devil is chained and locked into a bottomless pit. Now, in chapter 19, Jesus has already appeared in the sky on the white horse. He has slain or killed all of those who gathered against him. Now, note in chapter 20, the Bible says that Satan is called here the deceiver of nations. He is ultimately the one who was responsible for that great battle, for the gathering of the armies of men, for the deceiving of the nations. Satan was the one responsible We're also told that he is the serpent of old. We know from scripture that he's been at this deception. He has been doing these deceiving things since the very beginning of the Bible. When he appears as a serpent to Eve. 
But if we go back to the beginning, as I said, the key to understanding this is going to be found in chapters 2 and 3. If we go back to the beginning of Revelation, we go, for example, to the church of Ephesus. The church of Ephesus, we're told, has had to endure, as I've already mentioned once, a number of people showing up at their door claiming to be followers of Christ. They have come claiming, some have even come claiming to be apostles, meaning they come claiming to have the authority of Christ himself, only for them to be found false, that they were deceivers. If you go to the churches of Smyrna, in Philadelphia, both of those churches are dealing with a group of people that are called the synagogue of Satan, who are also described as people who are deceptive. You go to the church in Pergamum. Now get this. Imagine Jesus describing your church this way, or where your church is at. He says, the church of Pergamum exists where Satan's throne is at. This is a church that exists where Satan has his home, or where the text says, where Satan dwells. And this church exists in a place that has already caused them the loss of the martyr of one of their pastors. The church in Thyatira is rebuked for tolerating false teacher, one particularly by the name of Jezebel. The point here is that in this moment in chapter 20, The one who has been bothering or troubling the church for centuries. The one who is responsible for all the lies that have been told about the church. The one who is responsible for all the lies that have come out of the church. That one, that troubler of the church is being bound up. The one in chapters 12 and 13 of Revelation who is described again as the deceiver of the nations, deceiver of humanity, the one who is the rallying cry behind those who rebel against the king of kings is chained up and locked away. And the idea here is not that he is simply restricted. The idea here is that by the command or on the command of Christ, Satan is bound up and rendered completely inactive. And I want you to note something here, that it is not even Jesus who does the binding. It is an angel that is given a chain and a key and binds him up. The text clearly is communicating that Satan has any, he does not have any ability, his complete inability to do anything about what's happening to him. It is to expose him. In this text, these first three verses, what this does is exposes the devil as nothing more than a con artist. He's nothing more than someone who can manufacture the appearance of power. But it's all deception. So consider for a moment. Just imagine, if you use your imagination this morning, consider being a member of the church at Pergamum. Again, your church is described as existing near the throne of Satan. Your church has been planted in what is considered the dwelling area of the devil himself. Imagine being a member of a church that has already lost one pastor to martyrdom. A pastor, the Bible even goes out of the way to tell us, is a faithful or was a faithful witness. Having somebody take a life is a tremendous display of power. To watch an innocent life be taken is a scary display of power. 
If you were a member of that church, would you be tempted to think that the enemy was in control and not God? Or perhaps if we take it a little bit closer, have you ever considered, you look around into our nations and you think of the institutions and you think of the leaders and you think of the industries and you see a number of them having embraced the lies or the deceptions of the enemy. Have you ever looked at all those things and asked yourself the question, what hope is there that a church like First Baptist Church of Maxwell could ever make a difference? You don't have an eloquent speaker for a pastor. You don't have the world's greatest worship band. We don't have a multi-million dollar budget. Geographically, we're not in an area where we're going to reach millions of people for the gospel. And so there is an easy, uh, have you ever have you ever just considered maybe, maybe the enemy just has too much control? Maybe he just has too much power. Have you ever, I, I do this every Wednesday morning. I open up the phone book. And uh, I, be, I pray every day for about three people out of the, the phone book that is the Maxwell section of the phone book. It's not a big section, but I pick three people every day to pray for. And, of course, in every phone book, you're going to run into sections of that phone book where a number of people have the same last name. And it's pretty clear, unless it's something like Smith or Brown, when it's something unique, it's pretty clear that those are families that have been here for multitudes of generations. And having been your pastor now for five years, I know last names that have never walked into this church. How easy would it be to believe that a family that has been here for generations but perhaps never been a part of this church, how easy would it be to believe that they would never believe the gospel? How easy would it be to believe that the enemy has too much power? Or consider for a moment, what it would have been like to attend the church in Ephesus? Having to deal with one after another, showing up for church, claiming to be a Christian, claiming to follow Christ, only watching them again and again turn out to be false. How long? How long until you begin to feel like the whole world has gone after counterfeit gospels? How long until you give up trying to keep out things like prosperity theology or liberal theology? How long until you think the church is a lost cause because you have believed the deception? But what do we see in the text here in Revelation chapter 20? That in all of these displays of power, in all of these places where we think we see the enemy have control in in these families, in these nations, What we find out in this text is that it was nothing more than an illusion. It was nothing more than the enemy trying to get the church to chase after something other than Christ. It was nothing more than to get us to believe that Christ was not enough. Because here we see the Lord command and Satan chained up and locked away. So let me ask you this question. Do you believe, do you believe that the Lord Jesus Christ, whom you serve, is greater than the God of this world? We are called to endure for Christ, to stay vigilant against deception. Second lesson we would get from this text is this, is that we are called to remain faithful and to receive reward. 
remain faithful and receive reward. Look at verses 4 through 6. We have the establishment of the kingdom, but we also, in fact, the majority of the text is given to telling about these groups of people who are raised or resurrected from the dead. The kingdom is established, and we're told that this group of people who endured, who remained faithful during this great time of tribulation, who died for their faithfulness, are resurrected and given thrones to sit upon. We're told that they rule alongside of Christ for a thousand years. For the entire existence of the kingdom, they share a throne with Christ. And we're told, or it's clarified to us, that the rest, everybody else has to wait for the res- their resurrected body until everyone is called to stand before God. But again, this is a major theme. You go back to chapters 2 and 3 of the book of Revelation. For example, in chapter 2, verse 7, the members of the church of Ephesus, what are they told? If they endure this onslaught of false teachers, they're told that their reward is going to be to eat from the tree of life, to live eternally in the paradise of God. The church in Smyrna is told that those who endure the suffering, the persecution brought upon by the synagogue of Satan, everybody who endures will receive the crown of life. The members of the church of Pergamum, who decided not to follow the false teacher, who do not fall into the ways of sexual immorality, are told they're rewarded by giving a special name by Jesus, given special manna to eat. The members of the church of Thyatira are told not to give in to the seduction of false teachers. That if they don't, they will, be given, they will be given authority in the kingdom. They will receive what the Bible describes as the morning star. Likely a reference to this resurrection. The members of Sardis in Philadelphia and Laodicea are told that there is reward for enduring the shame, the suffering, the heartbreak that, caused, that, that comes from being faithful when it looks like the whole world is going after something other than Christ. So what we have in this text, in verses 4 through 7, is not just a prophecy, a revelation about the future. It's not just about a literal kingdom, which it is. It's not just about a literal, physical, bodily return of Christ, which it is. It's a revealing that the promise of reward to the believers that endure even after the enemy seeks to hit them with everything possible, the ones who endure, the promises they have of reward are true promises. We get revealed, we see here, as God has promised throughout all of Scripture again and again, that there is reward for those who remain faithful to Christ. We see in this text those promises fulfilled. Spurgeon Charles Spurgeon used this illustration to try and help people understand the idea. He said, imagine imagine a man receives word that he's going to be given a rather large inheritance from a distant relative. Most of us like to imagine those kind of things, right? Some distant second, third removed uncle who's quite wealthy decides you're their favorite nephew or niece, leaves you lots of money. Spurgeon says, so imagine that happens to a young man. It says all the young man has to do is go to London and just sign a paper and retrieve or receive this inheritance. And he says, let's say that the man gets in his carriage. Of course, Spurgeon existed before cars. He says he gets into his carriage and he drives, but about a mile outside the city, a wheel breaks. Spurgeon asks this question, what kind of fool 
would stand there and curse and complain about a broken wheel instead of continuing to walk on foot to retrieve his inheritance. And so that's us as a church. Ask ourselves the question, in the midst of our duties, in the midst of serving Christ, what are the things that would cause us to stop and curse and complain? If the Lord were to take away our buildings, if the Lord were to take away our budget, would we be the church that stopped and cursed and complained, or would we be the church that would cover the last mile on foot because we believe the promises of God? Look, I understand a lot of discouraging things happen. The old joke among pastors is that ministry would be great except for people. I know it can be discouraging to watch children raise or come up in your church and, and watch them walk away from the Lord when they become of age. I know some of you this morning, I've, not, I've only again been here for five years, I know some of you this morning can look around and you can see empty pews. And you can be reminded of people who used to sit here, who used to serve in this church, but are no longer following the Lord. One of the things we must make sure we do is we make sure that when these kind of things happen, they do not take us off course. That if we must have the mentality that we believe that the promises of God are true. And so if we have to finish the race on foot, that's what we will do. Of course, the question is the same for us as individual Christians, right? What causes you in your personal life to stop and curse and complain? Do you believe the promises of God? Could you finish the course on foot? What we have in this text is a reminder that the promises that God has made to us are going to be promises that will be kept. For those who remain faithful, there will be rewards. For those who are faithful to Christ and to his gospel, there is a coming reward. So number three, the third lesson that we get from the, this text is remain wise, remain wise in the face of foolishness. Remain wise in the face of foolishness. Verses 7 through 10. So we have this very literal kingdom. This is established by the actual physical return of Christ. At the end of it, Satan is let loose again. And we watch as this great deceiver is once again able to deceive the people of earth to rebel against Christ. But this time, as they march upon Christ and they march upon his city, fire from heaven comes and consumes him. And in that moment, the angel Satan is thrown in the lake of fire with all of the other enemies of Christ... Well, they will receive their torment day and night for all of eternity. I want you to think and consider something real quick with me. Consider that this great and final rebellion happens after the thousand-year reign of Christ. After a thousand years, after generation after generation after generation of living under the authority and rulership of Christ, humanity still falls prey to the deceptions of of the enemy. A thousand years of perfect conditions, of perfect rulership, of perfect justice, still does not convince the hearts of men to follow Christ. 
Again, we go back to chapters 2 and 3, and we notice some things about these churches that are very similar. Each of these churches at the beginning of the book of Revelation started with a, a great work of God. Several of them are mentioned to being the kind of church who had an incredible heritage. People that Christ says openly, you, you used to be essentially the, 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 the example of what kind of church you should be. But even after that great heritage, even after the many generations of faithful following Christ, we also see these same churches after experiencing trials and tribulations, some that came from inside the church, some that came from without the church. We saw some of them grow weary. Some of them fell to the temptation of going to a mechanical and heartless religion of rule-keeping. Some of them are tempted and they fall to the temptation of the sensuality of the world. As we saw in 1 John just a few weeks ago, this is a reality the church has always had to face. Many will hear the gospel, many will claim to belong to Christ, and yet many will also fall away. There are a number of Old Testament texts, specifically in the book of Isaiah, that tell us about this kingdom. Tell us about the conditions on the ground. Maybe they weren't so great. Well, Isaiah tells us that during that thousand-year reign of Christ, there'll be no war, the, a world completely at peace. Isaiah tells us it will be a time where there will be daily happiness. We're told that in this kingdom, there'll be good health and long lives. We're told in this kingdom that there will be prosperity for everyone. There'll be, and that every labor that will be done, they'll be done with joy. We're told that this is going to be the, the, the apex of the human experience on earth, where there's great personal lives, great government, and a happiness that is not based upon the blowing of the wind. Yet, the Bible says that at the release of Satan, humanity will march from the four corners of the earth in order to rebel. This is one of the hardest lessons of the Christian life. Because if there's something we all want to believe, it is that if we tell the truth, if we do the right thing, if we're just loving enough to our neighbor, if we're just a kind enough person, that everything's going to turn out okay. But the Bible warns us over and over and over again that to be a faith, to, if we are faithful to the wisdom of God, this may in fact increase our persecution and trials because of the sinful nature of humanity. This is what you've heard me talk about this before. This is why I have the, the, the fatal flaw of what is known as lifestyle evangelism. People become Christians. People come to know the Lord when they hear the gospel. And while I'm certainly not trying to discourage you from being hospitable, and I'm certainly not trying to discourage you from being kind and wonderful people, certainly the Bible clearly states that, there are, that, that God's people are the most loving and kind and hospitable people on the planet. But let us understand that people only become Christians when they hear and believe the gospel. You will not live perfectly. You will never respond perfectly to everything that happens. 
And certainly you should, again, be very aware of your testimony before others. But understand, they will only become Christians when they hear and believe the gospel. We're also, of course, we learn in this text not to chase after foolishness. And that temptation is certainly the hardest, or certainly the strongest during hard things. During a trial, it's very easy to become double-minded, isn't it? To think, well, you know what, I'm going to pray, I'm going to seek the Lord in this, but, but in the back of your mind have a number of backup plans. It's very easy to believe that our circumstance, our problem, our difficulty is some special exception. That perhaps maybe the wisdom of God isn't for, for your situation, or perhaps the wisdom of God doesn't have anything to say about your situation. It's very easy to think that we need to modify something. When weariness sets in in a church, that is when we are most prone to hear the false promises of the false teachers in their counterfeit wisdom. It becomes very easy in times of weariness to forget the gracious works of God and the power of the truth that once saved you. So let me, let me tell you something that will always, always be true. There will always be fools ready to give you advice. And in times of weariness and in times of difficulties, that is when you are going to be most prone to listen. But we are being warned here not to chase after foolishness, but seek wisdom. To remain faithful to the wisdom of Jesus Christ, at the center of which is the gospel that the Bible says is the power of God to save. So we're told in this text about the coming, Jesus' coming, about his kingdom, about his rulership. A kingdom uh, 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 that, we, uh, that is everything we could ever dream. A place where righteousness is the rule of law. Obedience to Christ is the norm. A place where sin will be confronted with perfect justice. And again, not, this is told to us, this, this thousand-year reign of Christ, we're, we're, it's told to us not so that we can speculate, not so that we can day, daydream, but to read this and endure. So we don't believe the deception that to think that the enemy's power is greater or the problems of humanity are too much for Jesus Christ. We're told about this so that we know with absolute certainty that the promises of God are true and they will be ours. And we are to endure every broken wheel that comes. And we're told this so that we would not be tempted to chase after foolishness in our times of trouble. We endure because we remember the grace shown to us by Christ when he saved us. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this vision of the future, this reminder of the certainty of the coming of Christ, of the establishment of his kingdom. But also I thank you, Father, that this text has lessons for us today to remain vigilant against deception, to remind ourselves that there is a reward waiting for those who are faithful. And Father, in the midst of our weariness, in the midst of our troubles, I pray, Lord, you would keep us from chasing after foolishness, but to embrace your wisdom. And we thank you for these things and the reminder of these things, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close our service.